and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Wesley Hoddott, Senior Attorney at the Institute for Justice. We will discuss the pending Supreme Court case, Timms v. Indiana, in which Hoddott represents the petitioner, Mr. Tyson Timms. So welcome to the program, Wesley. Oh, thank you for having me. So it's great pleasure, great pleasure to, to talk to you. Uh, it's been a little while. You know, we've known each other for for a long time now. Um, but I was wondering if if you could say a little bit uh, something about yourself, your background, and sort of how your career took you to the point where you became a Supreme Court litigator of all things. Well, you're the perfect foil for this story because um, after going to my parents as a dirtball bike messenger in Seattle and asking them what I should do, I was encouraged to to go to law school, which I sort of accepted with a shrug. I mean, the other dimension of this, of course, is my um, long-running competition with my wife, Annie, who herself is a brilliant lawyer and went to law school around the same time. But I found myself uh, at the University of Washington and in my first summer uh, wanting to work for a specific judge of the Washington Supreme Court, Richard Sanders, who was um, you know, known as a, a libertarian. My primary affinity to him was that I saw him dissenting consistently in criminal cases, and that encouraged me to kind of want to be on his team. And when I walk into the interview, I'm surprised to see somebody I know. It's it's Brian Fry saying in his jovial manner, Wesley, I guess this is off to a good start for you. Um, I had no idea that, that you were there, but that landed me my first gig as an extern to the chambers while you were a clerk there. And then uh, you and Justice Sanders encouraged me to work with uh, Bill Maurer and Michael Bendis, the at the time, the two attorneys in IJ's Seattle office, where I now work. Uh, fantastic, fantastic! And you've done quite a little, quite a bit of litigating before you took on uh, this particular case. I was wondering if you could just kind of give us some highlights of sort of like how your how your career has developed. Well, I'm very fortunate to work at a place where we're encouraged to be entrepreneurial and. Uh, seek out cases that we see as good vehicles to change the law for the better and make them happen. I mean, all throughout, uh, I get emails and calls from our management saying, like, what do you need to to win this case? And that puts a lot of um, responsibility in a young lawyer's hands early. And I think a lot of us recognize that in an era where cases are primarily decided based on briefs, um, there's not a lot of opportunity for courtroom time, even for really talented young advocates. Um, IJ is a special place in that regard. You can be arguing your first motion within your first months of being an attorney there. Um, It's part luck. It's part being prepared and in the right place at the right time. For me, um, I've always um, kind of done my own thing. It's been great. Like I just pursue the cases that I'm excited about and they support me in doing that. My first big win was in my first big case, a challenge to Texas's cosmetology regulations as applied to the practice of eyebrow threading. If you're not familiar with it, it's a South Asian hair removal technique that involves just sewing thread. 
And the state uh, insisted that threaders needed 750 hours of training in conventional cosmetology techniques. That is to say, not a minute spent on threading. They didn't test threading on their examination. You essentially had to learn how to do an old school weave to, um, to be able to do something that the state wasn't actually familiar with and wasn't teaching anybody. Um, in the end, you know, we, we lost in the trial court in challenging that law based on the Texas Constitution's protections for economic liberty. We lost in the Court of Appeals, and then we won in the Texas Supreme Court uh, by a vote of five to four. Uh, the court held that you can't make someone do something useless to their job in order to continue doing what they're doing. Uh, and, you know, we emphasize that it perhaps if the state was actually teaching a reasonable amount of threading and there was, um, you know, less of a burden that that, uh, might have come out differently. But, um, five judges of that court agreed with us that the Texas constitution protects a person's right to go into business, um, more so than the federal constitution does. And the Thames case is kind of a similar, approach, right? Like it's focused on the balance between state and federal power. Um, what are the rights of the individual vis-a-vis government power? Um, I like to think of my job as like, where is the line? Like I know that I'm doing something right if the court at whatever level is concerned about where it's drawing a line, because that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you can say a little something about the background of of the Tim's case. Like, you know, who is Tyson Tim's? What happened to him? And sort of what was the litigation like before you got involved? Because it's my understanding that that you and IJ came in at a later point at the case. Like you weren't there from the very beginning necessarily. Yeah, well just to talk about our starting point, it was uh, November second. 2017, when the Indiana Supreme Court's decision came down, my colleague Sam Gedge and I have a case challenging an Indiana state court. It's actually now pending before the Indiana Supreme Court, challenging um, their use of forfeiture funds. Um, the, the state constitution commands, sorry for this aside, but I think it's interesting, the, the state constitution commands that um, 100% of forfeiture money go to a school fund. And instead, since at least the early 80s, Indianapolis and several other counties and cities have been collecting all of that money for themselves. They use it to fund prosecutors and the police force. And it's created this perverse incentive to sort of pursue property on the streets and take it away from people. So anyways, Sam and I have that challenge um, up before the Indiana Supreme Court. And our local counsel back in November 2017 sent us the Thames decision and said, hey, this is also about forfeiture and it's from the court that we're litigating in. Well, we were talking about um, certworthiness and this case checked a lot of boxes um, immediately upon reading the Indiana Supreme Court's decision. But I think it's important to appreciate that um, we still needed a willing client. And Tyson was enthusiastic about um, taking this thing all the way to the end. He was confident in his argument, um, which was that this was unjust. And um, thankfully, he was confident in the Institute for Justice to to take his case on. 
and he's been a tremendous um, uh, wind in our sails, if you will, from the beginning. Um, he's an inspiring guy, and he's very humble. And he says, you know, I could never do what you guys do and stand up in court and make those kinds of arguments, but I know you're the right guys to to do it for me. And you know, I mean, you, you can't you can't buy a client like that. You're not going to get a client like that if they're what's at stake is money, mm. and institutional interests. So, um, you know, I feel really blessed. I feel blessed to have um, gotten into the legal profession in the first instance. You know, I was lucky to get directed towards IJ. And um, I've got lots of other examples of fantastic clients who were inspired to fight for something. And we come along and, you know, we're fortunate to be able to provide it to them for free. Mm. Um and that makes it that changes the the economics of it to be blunt um and it gives people uh it's really just a question do you want to fight or not it's not a question of can you afford to take a case to the supreme court or not i think if you paid sam and me to put together that brief at standard firm rates um, we would have easily bankrupted Tyson. It would have just been an impossibility. We probably would have bankrupted some small companies. Mm. I mean, it's probably like $500,000 or more worth of legal work. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing that, you know, the, the expense alone would, in the absence of organizations like Institute for Justice and other civil rights organizations, really prevent a lot of these cases effectively from coming before the Supreme Court or any court really uh, at all in a lot of cases. Um, you know, one thing that I thought was really interesting about your briefing uh, in this case was how historical it was. I mean, it's not every day that you see a Supreme Court brief referencing, you know, Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights and the Star Chamber in a non um, sort of hyperbolic way. Um, and I was wondering about the the decision to kind of take that historical focus, which was reflected in some of the amicus briefs as well. And, you know, why you felt like that was the right way to go in the briefing? Well, um, I found it a bit boring, honestly, um, all of this English law. And um, there, there's a tremendous story to tell, but it always feels familiar, right? And I, I think that um, it can come off to a sophisticated uh, legal audience as um, cherry picking the best history that, that you can find, essentially weaving together quotes. But here, our focus on history was really dictated by the legal standard. Uh, in, in the McDonald versus City of Chicago case in 2010, when the court incorporated the Second Amendment right to keep in arms, they laid out what the standard for incorporating a federal constitutional protection against the states is going to be. And they did that by weaving together all of the incorporation cases. And I think correctly concluding that their focus is on history and that to, to be an incorporated right, you have to be deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions. And the right has to be fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty. I mean, in some sense, um, that those are just kind of magic words that say this right has to be a right that can be demonstrated to have been important to our country over time. 
And I think the key historical moments for us were 1791 when the Bill of Rights was adopted and the excessive fines clause was adopted. But of course, that, um, that moment was the result of literally um, hundreds of years of English constitutionalism. And it, the, the excessive fines clause, the Eighth Amendment as a whole, draws directly from the English Bill of Rights of 1689. And the court itself in McDonald reached to these same sources um, to hold that the right to keep and bear arms met this standard. And so really, we had no choice but to focus on history. Right, right. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and one thing that a lot of people have commented on is sort of the relationship between the due process and privileges and immunities arguments and how those sort of were presented differently, perhaps, by the relevant parties in the McDonald Second Amendment case and and in this case. And I was wondering if you could just say something really briefly about sort of the difference between the two and, you know, why you took the approach that you did. Well, I mean, I think it can be summed up um, by, again, looking to the most recent uh, incorporation case, McDonald. Um, as some people know, Justice Thomas in that case took a different approach than um, the, the four justice plurality led by Justice Alito. Um, he was the critical fifth vote to hold that Chicago and other state and local authorities have to comply with the Second Amendment. And his view was that um, that right is incorporated not through the 14th Amendment's due process clause, but by its adjacent privileges or immunities clause. Now, this is distinct from Article 4's privileges and immunities, but we don't need to get into that at all. Effectively, um, we had to make that argument to get Justice Thomas's vote. Mm. And the backstory from McDonald was that um, Alan Gura um, and Clark Neely, who litigated the D.C. versus Heller case that established you had a federal right in the District of Columbia, that is, to keep and bear arms, then brought the follow-up case trying to establish that it also applied to cities like Chicago. And Alan um, notably led his argument um, with the privileges or immunities clause, emphasizing that it was the correct textual and historical basis for incorporating Bill of Rights protections. And um, that turned out, whether intentionally or not, to um, really inspire Justice Thomas to lay down a marker and say, I agree, that's the only defensible way to incorporate rights. Um, in our case, Brian, it comes down to, do you want to get Justice Thomas's vote or... Mm. Do you want to forfeit it? Um, and, and so despite, we didn't make a lot of it, but the last, I think, three to four pages of our brief says, hey, in the alternative, if you mm -hmm. think that's the correct method, it's also incorporated under the privileges or immunities clause. Yeah. So what were you expecting from the respondents from the state of Indiana um, in terms of their arguments? And were there any surprises? <laughs> were there any surprises for you there in terms of the briefing? I was surprised how good it was. Um, their so-called red brief, their response on the merits. Um, they didn't have a lot to work with. Uh, as I said, the, the right had 
um, an obvious and longstanding importance in Anglo-American law. It's easy to demonstrate that. Um, on top of that, the Supreme Court on five occasions, rather recently, like just within the last generation, has observed that the excessive fines clause should be understood to apply to the states. It just had never formally held that. And so while we were kind of playing a sort of game of defense, just saying like, well, here's the standard, we meet the standard, please just hold um, officially that this is incorporated. It was a much heavier lift for the lawyers for the state of Indiana. Mm -hmm. And what struck me most about their red brief was how good it was. Um, they, they managed to make some lemonade out of lemons and make a, you know, fairly compelling argument on the history that whatever you might think of the excessive fines protection, it just doesn't apply to forfeitures. This sort of in yeah, the in rem argument that they were making. Yeah, what they would call the the fiction of um, civil forfeiture actions, which it's true, have historically at times been understood. Um, to kind of be a constitution-free zone where the government could just strip people of their property um, without the conventional protections of, um, of criminal law, you know, which you would expect even from just watching a police drama on TV, um, the, the right against self-incrimination doesn't necessarily apply, um, the, the, the right to a prompt post-seizure hearing doesn't necessarily apply, even though you're entitled. Like if they take a ship from you um, in a port and you don't get notice of the proceeding, the government could still take the ship. So it's not, it, it's long been understood to be a constitution free zone. Now the, the important rejoinder to that is that, you know, our constitution also used to allow slavery and and we also used to understand cruel and unusual punishment to not be implicated by, you know, putting someone to death on the wheel um, or hanging or, or any number of other um, what today might be regarded as outrageous punishments. Mm -hmm. um, the point is that, you know, these were meant to be societal standards. Um, they were meant to, uh, to use a perhaps controversial word, evolve with the times. And um, certainly there are many other cases um, that did apply the excessive fines clause to even civil in-rim forfeitures. Um, most importantly, there's this case, Austin versus United States, decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1993, and Austin said, look, under federal law, a civil forfeiture, that's, it's really a label. Um, this is, what matters is, are we, is the government trying to punish someone? And if they are, then the excessive fines clause applies, as it did in that case. And so, you know, Indiana was forced to argue that while that might be true under federal law, it's not true under state law. So here's another dimension of sort of um, I think incorrect federalism, this view that states only have to do what has clearly been laid down by the Supreme Court as a boundary. Um, that can't be right. I mean, um, 
state judges, just like federal judges, take an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States and to protect people's rights under that document. Um, I think it's, um, it's approaching the case backwards to ask, have we been commanded to comply with the Constitution? Mm-hmm. Courts should affirmatively try to protect people's rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't sound so unreasonable. Um, <laughs> so coming coming into the case, it does seem like, you know, given the framing from the Indiana Supreme Court, the fact that the Supreme Court took the case in the first place on the incorporation issue, it does seem like it was sort of some signal that they were looking to reverse the Indiana Supreme Court on that issue, at least. Were there any surprises for you in the oral argument, kind of signaling what the justices were thinking or where they might kind of go in actually deciding the case? I mean, one thing that kind of struck me was the way in which so much of the conversation seemed to almost assume incorporation and the justices wanted to talk about sort of application under the particular circumstances. I think that's, that's my assessment of what was going on in the argument at bottom. Um, that we expected that um, because ask yourself, what is the, what, what is the constituency in the court for holding that the excessive fines clause doesn't apply to the states. How do you count to five for that where Indiana wins and we lose? Um, I mean, I think most observers of the case felt like the challenge, as you were suggesting, was getting cert. If we could get the court's attention, get cert granted, um, we would win in a walk. It was just a question of, is it a, 6-3 ruling or, or is it a 9-0 ruling in your favor? Yeah. Because you can assume that the liberal wing of the, the so-called liberal wing of the court, and I'm thinking of Justices Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Breyer, uh, and Kagan, those four justices, um, jurisprudentially, if you will, their sort of legal view um, is assumes rights, I think would uh, agree with uh, Tyson that Indiana had an obligation to protect against excessive fines, regardless of their views of what may or may not be excessive. They're going to believe as a starting point that states have to comply with that federal protection. And so the focus turns to you just need one other justice um, to win at a bare sort of 5-4. And um, Justice Alito had written the opinion in McDonald in 2010 um, with four other justices um, laying out exactly what he wanted to see in order to incorporate a, a right against the states. And again, that's why we had a sort of playbook given to us that mm. we um, had to implement with the, the historical analysis. Um, so our case was largely pitched to Justice Alito, I mean, to be kind of crass about it but but there is a lot of this nose counting that goes on in trying to win a supreme court case and um and to justice thomas as i said before we you know we wanted to give him the opportunity to write a concurrence that would reverse the indiana supreme court's judgment regardless of what the rest of the court did mm-hmm. you know of course the big question marks for us were the new justices where 
where does Justice Gorsuch, where does Justice Kavanaugh stand on this? Yeah, it doesn't seem like and, that's too much uh, of a question after the argument anymore, is it? Precisely, precisely. That was, I was very satisfied, um, A, that they sort of seemed to be smiling throughout my presentation and didn't have um, any hard questions for me. But then they just, it's fair to say, lit into um, Tom Fisher, who's a very capable lawyer. And as I was saying, made, I think, the best argument he could with what he had. But Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh seem to be saying, well, Gorsuch literally did say, come on, um, we're really arguing about this in 2018. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think that that signals, I mean, it's a little bit of a digression, but I mean, do you think that signals anything about the way that they might be thinking about some of those Bill of Rights provisions that, you know, for historical reasons, haven't actually been incorporated? Because I mean, they almost signaled, it seemed like to us in a sense that like, they, they didn't think that that was right. I think it's true that they were um, surprised that anyone was taking the position that the excessive fines clause doesn't apply to the states. What's really interesting is how far does that go in their jurisprudence? And, you know, at this stage, we just don't know. Um, Lower court judges don't make rulings about incorporation on any sort of regular basis. So it's not like either one of them have a track record. This is something you only do when you're on the Supreme Court. But they did signal that they're not radical, at least as to the first eight amendments. I I think the really interesting question is, what federal protections do they recognize as against the states outside of those first eight amendments? Are they coming on so strong on the theory that the first eight amendments apply to the states because they think there's lots of other federal rights that don't? Mm. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what, what, one thing I wanted to ask you about sort of tactically was um, the uh, Justice Breyer asked a, a series of questions to the respondent that I thought were, were really interesting about, you know, when cons- confiscation would be would be permissible. And I mean, he basically came just out and said, well, basically always would be permissible. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you think he had a choice? Was that, would you, would you have answered that question in the same way or was there some way to finesse it? Because that just seemed like a really tough thing to have to say to the court. Yeah, I, it was striking. I think that, um, you know, my litigator uh, Weasley brain immediately goes to the idea. Well, maybe your honor, but um, that's not this case here. This vehicle was, intimately involved with a crime. Of course, that's not true. He just happened to drive somewhere. And when you live in rural Indiana and are summoned to a parking lot, you tend to drive there. Um, and so, so his theory did have to be radical that like, look, we can forfeit basically anything that has any connection loosely defined to a crime. Um, but I don't think it had to be so radical in the oral argument itself. I think he could have said, Look, it depends. Um, And that would have been the correct answer. It's not true that the government can forfeit any property it wants, particularly with a focus on the value of the property. He wasn't Mm -hmm. just saying we can take anything that's connected to a crime. He was saying, look, if we target a guy with a fancy car, 
the Bugatti was the the subject of discussion and argument. No, or the jalopy. Um, the, or the jalopy. <laughs> either one. Um, there are really no boundaries. And historically, one of the animating concerns of the excessive fines clause was that government, this was pointed out by Justice Scalia, um, in fact, that, that government is motivated to um, collect fines and forfeitures from people because unlike every other form of punishment, it makes money. You know, you can fund your operations by taking property from people, whereas putting them in jail, you know, that's expensive. And indeed, you know, one of the at least anecdotal, if not empirical, but it's actually empirical. It's something like 80% of federal forfeitures are civil in nature and don't involve any criminal charges, right? Mm -hmm. They say you committed a crime, but they don't ante up and charge you with a crime. They just take your property. Yeah. Well, that was one thing that really struck me about the oral argument too, is it it seemed like at least some of the justices seem to want to be creating an analogy or a comparison between forfeiture and fines and sort of criminal punishment. Um, and what was your, what was your take on that? I mean, did you have any sense of sort of where that was going and, and how did, you know, were you anticipating have to res- having to respond to those kinds of analogies? Yes. Um, you, you know, in light of Indiana's argument that, um, the, the decision in Austin should not apply to state and local forfeitures. Um, we knew that the justices were going to be curious about um, whether Austin remains good law. I mean, of course it does. It was a unanimous decision from uh, 1993 and um, many other states haven't questioned it. Um, but I was surprised um, that, there was, there was a question about whether it could ever be punitive. Uh, this is, I'm thinking of Justices Alito and the Chief. Um, whether it could ever be punitive to take away property that was even loosely connected to a crime. Uh, effectively, like questioning the, the fundamental reasoning of Austin. Um, this is why tactically, as you say, I was trying to keep the court focused on what the real issue was is just broadly speaking, does the excessive fines clause apply to the States and it's battle for another day. I think an important one about how much stuff the government has access to forfeiting um, when you happen to commit a crime. I, and I mean, I don't mean to say that casually, nothing about our argument prevents the government from imposing serious fines for serious crimes. We weren't arguing that Tyson's vehicle as a constitutional matter um, wasn't subject to forfeiture. Um, We were just saying that, look, under all of the circumstances of the case, uh, it it is excessive to take this particular vehicle. And unfortunately, there's no mathematical formula for that. Mm. It's not just a question of, you know, the numerator being, um, what the value of the property is and the denominator being like, you know, how much of a criminal fine could be imposed. Although that was literally the test that was applied by the Indiana court of appeals here. Um, That's, that's not the test as the court, the Supreme court has emphasized in cases like uh, Bajikajian 
versus United States. And, and in Austin itself, um, it's really a question of all of the circumstances. The court declined in Austin to articulate factors for when property could and could not be excessive to forfeit. Um, and so that, re- that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Well, so f- f- from to, to kind of change the subject a little bit, were there, um, were there amicus briefs that you found particularly helpful or useful as, you know, one of the litigants in the case? And sort of, if so, what was your sense of what, what made for a good amicus brief under the circumstances or a helpful one under the circumstances? Oh, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, the NAACP's brief uh, really impressed me. They actually were on two briefs. Um, the, the organization was on um, one of the briefs on behalf of uh, civil rights groups, both liberal and, uh, and conservative. Uh, but the Legal Defense Fund uh, wrote its own brief which I thought was very um, illuminating. They discussed uh, one of the other unincorporated rights that Justice Ginsburg mentioned in the argument in the Thames case. That is the right to be convicted by a unanimous jury. Um, the, the court held in Apodaca versus Oregon that in, indeed that Sixth Amendment right, although it applies in federal court, um, doesn't apply in state courts. And um, there's only two states, Oregon and Louisiana, that when we were writing our briefing had um, that kind of process for convicting people where, um, you know, I I think in both states it's 10 jurors can vote to convict and two can vote to acquit and you still get a conviction. Um, The NAACP brief laid out that, like, look, as a historical matter, and again, that's the test for incorporation, um, these laws were, in the case of Louisiana, inspired by racial animus against blacks. And in uh, Oregon, it was animus against Eastern Europeans, specifically Jews. Um, as, as the result, in Oregon, it's, it's kind of interesting as a result of this sensationalist trial. Um, I'm learning all of this from the, uh, excuse me, a sensationalist trial in which two Jew- Jewish jurors refused to convict a Jewish defendant, which Mm. set off a firestorm of suspicion of um, Eastern Europeans broadly um, and their ability to, in the view of proponents for changing the rule, their ability to sort of follow the rules in America. Um, And, you know, so the NAACP is saying, look, you know, the, the history of these, um, allowances uh, is racial and religious animus. The court shouldn't allow states to escape federal constitutional rights based on that. And I think that's correct. Indeed, um, in this last election, um, this past November, Louisiana voters passed a constitutional amendment to change that and require unanimous jury convictions in their state. So now it's just Oregon hanging out there. Um, who knows what the court would decide if that came back before it today, you know, for, for what it's worth, Apodaca is really the result of a one justice concurrence. Mm. It's just because justice white thought that Oregon could do that, that Oregon got to do that. 
Yeah. Well, there were some there were some amicus briefs submitted by law professors in the case as well. And I was, I was wondering if you, could, if you could opine on those to some degree. I mean, do you think they were helpful yeah. to you or to the court? And if so, you know, what what made them helpful? In other words, like if law professors are going to engage in amicus briefing, whether at the Supreme Court or Supreme Court or elsewhere, I mean, from your perspective, what can we do to be most effective? Um, yeah, I'd forgotten about that dimension of your question, but it's it's what I really liked the first time around. Um, I, you know, specifically in our case, I thought the brief of the Eighth Amendment scholars, um, Beth Colgan, who I mentioned before, uh, Nicholas McLean, um, and a few others. I mean, these folks had, were really the experts on the history of the excessive fines clause and what it was meant to do. Uh, you, you know, back in 1221 with Magna Carta. Um, and by the way, one of the sort of nervousness is that one of the things I was really nervous about in writing the brief and bringing the argument to the chief was that I had heard him say several years ago that we hate it when people quote Magna Carta. We like our authority more recent than that. Um, but, but it was true that um, there is a lot of history here. It's a lot to bite off in a brief. And, um, you know, we wanted to keep things simple to emphasize to the court that the solution here was obvious, just hold that the excessive fines clause applies to the states. So it was just a huge um, release of pressure from us to have law professors who could, who were ready, able and willing to sort of use their existing scholarship and transform it into advocacy um, on behalf of an important right. I mean, Nicholas McLean put together, I thought, a tremendous brief um, that um, walked through why uh, today uh, there's just as much of a need for excessive fines protection as there was at Runnymede when, you know, famously the barons insisted that the the king stop stealing their land and property. Mm, mm, mm. So, like, really... So, I mean, I... yeah, I mean, to put it in concrete terms, I think um, I think law professors should look at what they already have on hand um, when they're asked to, to do an amicus brief and um, transform it into something different. That is, like, you've got the research. In our case, they have the history. Um, but an amicus brief is a dip- different application of that research than laying it out in neutral terms in a law review article. And an amicus brief is an opportunity to um, put on a slightly different hat, that of, um, of an advocate. And you don't have to walk that neutral line quite as much. Um, I think the best briefs do two things. Um, they add something new to the case, you know, rather than just writing a so-called me too brief. Um, you, you say something that no one else is saying. The NAACP is an example of that. Um, there were, of course, several historic, uh, you know, history-focused amicus briefs in our case. Um, but Nick McLean's was particularly good because um, he seemed to be communicating to the court that it would be making a profound historical digression, an accident, if you will, um, an offense to the history of the excessive fines clause to hold that states didn't have to comply with it. Um, and, and I think that uh, some professors submit briefs that are um, 
sort of focused more on a platonic view of the law where like what, what the Supreme Court should adopt um, starting from tabula rasa where there were no previous decisions. And um, the best briefs, I think, recognize um, that the court has to write an opinion that's based on precedents and they just walk the court through why the solution is obvious, mm. not hard. Mm. So Wesley, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, if anything, you learned from your first time arguing a case before the Supreme Court, and what, if anything, you would do differently or kind of a new perspective you might bring um, next time you argue before the Supreme Court. Well, I like how you're thinking. Um, It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's an opportunity to speak to these people um, who, of course, you know, I don't know, but you, you sort of feel like you know them if you read a lot of Supreme Court opinions and, and think and talk a lot about uh, where things might go. Um, we all like to pretend like we can predict what they're going to do, but believe me, I'm often wrong. Um, so it's a great thrill to actually be in front of them and have an opportunity just to talk to them, regardless of what it is we're talking about. Um, I think that the thing that I learned most is that, um, the court has a job to do and, um, the lawyers have a job to do and the best advocates have this rapport with the court where it's almost like they're a peer uh, a very respectful, deferential, um, patient peer, but a, a person of equal intellectual standing who um, has the solution um, that the justices ought to follow based on all of the circumstances of the case. And um, it's not like in the past, I've thought I will be a helpful law clerk to the court. Um, and that suggests, as I was suggesting with um, some scholars' briefs, um, a, a sort of neutrality. Uh, you know, I, I'm just here to provide the court with information. Um, I think what the best advocates do is show up with a firm conviction that, um, you know, the court really should listen to them um, and not the other guy. Mm. And if I were to go back, which I hope to do, but of course it's not guaranteed at all. I was lucky to get to be the spokesperson for a talented team of lawyers this time. I don't know if I'm going to get that chance again, but if I do, I think I'll go back in with a lot more confidence, not just for having done it before, but because that confidence wins. Mm. Um, You you of course have to have a mastery of the material. There's no getting around that at any level, Um, but it is on a different level in terms of what could come up. Um, at times during preparation, I would say to the team, like, we have to be ready to defend the entire Constitution. Um, the, the court's going to have questions about the Sixth Amendment right to the unanimous jury verdict, as they did. Um, the court's going to have questions about um, the grand jury indictment right, which the court held long ago doesn't apply to the states. And we have to read up on all of that stuff. It's a lot of um, it's a lot of like trying to anticipate what they're realistically going to ask, but preparing even for this very marginal risk of what they might ask. Mm. Um, in the end, the argument 
went much as we anticipated. And the only thing that really felt like a curveball was Justice Breyer's line of questioning to me, um, <laughs> from which Justice Ginsburg saved me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that, that I think is a place that even the best Supreme Court advocates have found themselves in. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so, Wesley, it's been really great talking to you about about the case and about your your experiences. And I, I know it's dangerous, but I feel like I can't wrap up an interview like this without at least asking you if you have any guesses about what you think might might happen. And in particular, like not just the outcome, but sort of like, how do you think the court's likely to get there? And what do you think it might do in this case? Well, I think the most straightforward application of McDonald suggests that Justice Thomas votes to reverse on the the theory that the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment included incorporation of the first eight amendments, including the excessive fines clause. What's interesting about that position, although it has um, some other downsides, it has the virtue of incorporating rights that today aren't incorporated, like the unanimous jury verdict, the right to indictment by grand jury, um, incidentally, the right to a civil jury trial in cases involving $21 or more. That could <laughs> potentially make a small claims court unconstitutional. Oh, my. Um, but you know, that, that sort of absolutist view, um, I, I think he is absolutely going to adopt, I say absolutely, but I, I feel very confident that he'll write that concurrence. Um, and I think Justice Alito is, um, if you'll allow the expression, kind of boxed in by his McDonald opinion and our straightforward application of that reasoning Certainly Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and and Sotomayor all suggested that they feel strongly that the excessive fines clause should apply to the states. Um, Now all we have to ask ourselves about whether or not we're going to win is do Justices Ginsburg and Breyer believe that states should be free to impose constitutionally excessive fines? Um, That seems like a no-brainer. The answer is no. And so um, the only questions that I have are about the chief. And um, he did, uh, to my surprise, really want to talk about what's next on the horizon. He did seem, as you said earlier in the interview, to assume that the clause applied, but had very pointed questions um, about what the court might do in future cases involving the forfeiture of property. Um, and, and he seemed to signal, as, as did Justice Alito, a skepticism that this larger project of trying to make it unconstitutional for the government to strip people of their money, their home, their truck, that the court's really going to want to get into that. Um, you know, it's, it's good to be in a position where you're only asking questions about one justice, maybe two. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that that means you're going to win. Um, and. What I would really like to see, uh, what I'm hoping for, is uh, an 8-1 decision in which eight justices agree based on a straightforward application of the due process incorporation standard that the excessive fines clause applies to the states with that one justice concurrence from Thomas saying that that's also true under the privileges or immunities clause.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I'm kind of inclined to put my money on that as well. Um, and it seems like this story of the excessive fines clause is only beginning. Um, so I'm really interested to see where it goes next. Oh, there's there's active litigation, not just in the area of excessive forfeitures, but also um, in the area of fines and fees. I mean, our brief discusses situations where Midwestern towns um, really use their populations to, to harvest fines and fees to fund the city. You know, instead mm-hmm. of raising taxes, they just take people's money for having grass that's too long or, you know, in some cases like broken screens. Um, so I, I do think that there's a future um, for this clause and hopefully courts will take it up as an important issue. Awesome. Well, Wesley, thanks so much. It's been really great talking to you. Yeah, Brian, it's always nice to hear your voice. Thanks for your interest in this case. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. The purpose for setting bail is to assure the presence of the defendant at his trial. What is excessive bail, therefore, depends upon the facts in each particular case. In a few instances, as when a capital offense such as murder is charged, bail may be denied altogether. Whether fines or penalties are cruel or unusual must also be determined on the fact torture is one form of punishment that would be deemed cruel. Cruelty under this provision must be tested not in the abstract, but by weighing both the end and the means used. The Supreme Court has, for example, declared that for a state to imprison a person whose only offense is that he is afflicted with a disease constitutes cruel and unusual punishment contrary to the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment.